Why choose a Sleep Number smart bed? Because no two people sleep the same. Only the Sleep Number smart bed lets you each choose your individual firmness and comfort your Sleep Number setting. The Climate 360 smart bed is so smart, it actively cools or warms up to 13 degrees on either side for your ideal sleep temperature. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number special edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. To find a store near you, visit sleepnumber.com. And welcome to the Parentologist Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Kim. The Parentologist Podcast is a show about everything parenting with a therapeutic twist. I have a doctorate in psychology and am a licensed marriage and family therapist, a registered play therapist, university professor, writer, and mom of two. Each episode of the Parentologist Podcast focuses on a variety of topics related to parenting, family, children, and mental health. I'm glad you're here. On today's episode, we have Dr. Matt joining us. We met in our doctoral program 14 years ago, and not only does he happen to be my husband of 10 years and dad to our two children, he is also a clinical psychologist, a licensed marriage and family therapist, a licensed advanced alcohol and drug counselor, and is nationally certified in dialectical behavioral therapy. He has also worked as a clinical director for treatment and recovery centers across Southern California. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh, it's a privilege. Uh, Love to be a part of everything that you do and support you any way I can. Well, thank you. It means a lot to me. Okay, so let's go ahead and get started. So can you tell us how do people become addicted to alcohol and substances? Um, You know, I would would first clarify, um, you know, when taking addiction into consideration, there's a wide continuum. We, you can abuse substances and not necessarily be, uh, you know, have a full blown addiction. Um, addiction tends to be more in the, the higher severity of someone abusing substances. Abusing substances can still be very problematic. Um, but where, where you identify addiction is, um, twofold is when you really start seeing signs of tolerance. Uh, increased tolerance um, and withdrawal from the substance um, and then kind of regular uh, fixation on the substance attempts to reduce use that are unsuccessful and it starts affecting, you know, different areas of your life, like your, your job, your relationships, um, consuming your time. Um, So someone would, would start to feel an addiction to a substance when their use um, is, uh, you know, when they start feeling that compulsion to use, cravings to use, and then withdrawal if they don't. So withdrawal is just negative symptoms when you're not using. Um, so, you know, anything that triggers that dopamine response in your brain, you've got a potential to form an addictive relationship to it where you crave it, you want it. And if you, you need more and more of it to feel satisfied. And if you don't use it, you miss it. Um, you have negative symptoms because of that. So, you know, there's, uh, whether it be alcohol or marijuana or harder drugs, uh, you know, the harder the, the substance, the greater that of that dopamine response and your body's reaction to that can be intense you know, and, and why do we get into these relationships? What I often find is that it's a kind of like a dual impact of our environment, our relationships, our socialization, and then the bio, you know, there's 
biological influences, there's genetic influences uh, that make some people more vulnerable to addiction than others. Um, just like anything else in life, whether uh, it be food or sleep or exercise, we're all built differently. And there are those that have greater genetic vulnerabilities to addiction. However, you know, to, to a certain degree, we're all susceptible and likely can find things in our life that we have, uh, have an addictive relationship with. Um, and in substances, you know, if you have an environment that is stressful or, you know, trauma is a huge influence, we find that those that struggle with really severe addiction um, more times than not have trauma in their past. And trauma begets trauma. So trauma will lead you to substances, uh, to self-medicate, to cope. Uh, and then the use of those substances then bring on more experience that it makes you more likely to experience uh, more and greater trauma. So it becomes a, a terrible cycle. Uh, trauma, trauma elicits use um, and then use leads to trauma. Yeah, that is a vicious cycle. So, you know, addiction obviously affects the individual who has the addiction, but how does addiction impact the family system, whether it be a partner, children, um, extended family members, et cetera? Yeah, it's, it has a, a really significant influence. Um, what I find is, is family systems, whether it's, you know, couples, extended families, um, when you introduce something as powerful uh, and potentially devastating as addiction or, or uh, substance abuse, it creates a, a tremendous amount of anxious energy, um, a lot of emotional energy. And so that emotional energy, that tension that it creates through the devastation that addiction can cause uh, creates a dilemma for the family of how do they manage that effectively and, um, you know, we, when emotions are high, you know, we don't always handle it, uh, the best way and it can come out in ways that we regret and, and the intensity of that energy, uh, perpetuates the, the substance abuse because the tension is so high that the return to relief and those really difficult, devastating emotions are too much to handle. And it, and it just keeps the cycle of addiction, um, around, you know, the, what I find is that the toughest thing for families to understand and manage is this, con you know, this idea of the moral dilemma of addiction. Um, you know, the moral approach to addiction was common for years and years and years, kind of that idea that bad people do bad things. And, you know, families really struggle with, you know, why would they choose a substance over me or over our family? And uh, there's a challenge of how, uh, wrapping their brain around that um, and not really understanding the behavior of their loved one and why they do what they do. So there's a lot of psychoeducation that is provided to support kind of normalizing and helping educate the complexity of that um, and what happens to the brain uh, of a, of a person who's overcome with an addiction. And this, this stems even beyond things like drugs and alcohol. We see it in gambling or sex addiction or pornography addiction. Um, you know, that the power of, of that 
dopamine response and the withdrawal that happens when you when you don't uh, engage in whatever addictive behavior you have is so strong that that you know your prefrontal cortex the ability to stop and think and make good decisions uh, it diminishes it's it's taken over you know <clears throat> the part of your brain that's more about fight or flight and survival takes over because the idea of going without uh, whatever you're addicted to that substance is perceived as life or death. And so, uh, we, you know, we, val- we violate our morals, we violate our values. Um, and it's not because we're bad people doing bad things. It's that, uh, you know, we're not in the driver's seat. We've got this addiction that has kind of taken over our brain. Um, and le- you know, it, it becomes the number one priority, Right. So addiction uh, doesn't just affect the individual. It definitely affects the people around them. Absolutely. You know, the, um, the relationship, you know, the, an interesting thing about the neurotransmitter dopamine is that uh, it is fundamental in pleasure and it's also fundamental in attachment. And so dopamine is a neurotransmitter that says, man, this is not worth forgetting. This is something that you need to remember. Um, it was, it's part of our survival makeup that, uh, when you experience something that gave you pleasure, it was likely to associate that this is really important. Don't forget this. It's that infatuation of falling in love. It's the sweetness of a pair. Uh, you know, it's, it's that pleasure says this is important. Don't forget this. So drugs and alcohol distort that, um, those messages and use dopamine to attach you almost in the same way you would an emotional relationship. So it becomes very complex for the person that is addicted to the substance is because now they have an emotional psychological attachment to something that um, if they don't have it, they're not only devastated physically through things like withdrawal, but also they're devastated emotionally because they've got this emotional psychological attachment to this substance. So if you're the loved one of someone who's abusing alcohol or methamphetamine or heroin, uh, there's feelings of abandonment and betrayal and, um, the value, you know, the, the likelihood of violating our morals and values when we feel desperate for our substance and our relationships are the ones that pay the cost. So it can be extremely challenging. And so anyone that is seeking support in uh, recovery and, and sobriety, uh, family, a family component is so important because in, in order to help support them, validate them, and educate them so they have some objectivity uh, to give a little bit of distance from the hurt, that some of their experiences uh, has resulted in, in order to have a little bit more clarity of um, seeing those behaviors for what they are um, and helping a family, helping a spouse, helping a partner to look and say, let's separate. There's this disease of addiction. There's these behaviors that are associated and symptoms associated with addiction. And then there's the person that you love. And so let's separate those two. So let's keep the person that you love and let's get rid of this addiction where the the moral perspective kind of gloms those together and says, well, 
bad people do bad things. So, you know, my, my family member is, is a bad person doing bad things and that that's heartbreaking. So we need to break that cycle and help separate those two and get rid of that addiction and, and keep the, keep the loved one that, uh, it means is so meaningful in that relationship. Right. Right. So you mentioned gambling, sex addiction, Let's shift gears just a little bit. And I want to know, can people become addicted to other things, let's say to social media, their devices, um, the things that the technological things that seem to be so prevalent in our world today? Absolutely. You know, in modern marketing, if you create a product and it doesn't, you know, if you want it to be a bestseller, you know, find a way to have some dopamine release. You know, we live in a society today, uh, you know, thousands of years ago, dopamine wasn't, wasn't easy to come by. Um, you know, things that were sweet were not common. Um, you didn't come across them very often. Pleasure was something that wasn't as common. Um, now we go to the grocery store and we've got a hundred different chocolate bars to choose from. Um, you know, every, all the additives in our food and, uh, everywhere we look, if something is designed to engage us, uh, psychologically, like our computers, our video games, there is a science of how do we create a dopamine response that rewards the consumer. So whether it's food, whether it's video games, um, the classic example is the slot machine. So the slot machine, when you go to a casino, that is a device that is designed in every shape, form, or fashion, especially nowadays with these elaborate screens, to give you a dopamine response at every turn and keeps you back, keeps you coming back. Because logically, you would look at interacting with a slot machine and think, this makes absolutely no sense. But emotionally, psychologically, physiologically, it's so rewarding that you just can't stop yourself. You keep coming back. Um, so social media, our engagement in, in video games, if you look at the little games that are on your cell phone, um, you know, all of those are designed to give little dopamine responses. Um, and through the process of things like classical conditioning or operant conditioning, where they pair behaviors with these little dopamine responses. And what it does is it trains you when you're not necessarily even aware of it to build a compulsion that now when you hear the little bell or you hear the little sound or you see the color of the wrapper in your mind, it says, oh, that means dopamine. And so you start to salivate <laughs> um, right. and, and it, it builds a compulsion um, so a good example is, you know, in the next, in the next day or two, pay attention at times that you reach for your phone and you don't know why, or why your finger inadvertently, like you pick up your phone and you've opened a social media app without even thinking. Um, that means that you've been trained and the ultimate tool to train is dopamine. It's that treat when you're teaching your dog a treat or a trick you give them that little treat at the end because that dopamine at the end is what solidifies the behavior. So, you know, there's today we are more susceptible to addiction 
than ever before, only because it's intentionally produced and marketed to us. So something to be thoughtful about moderation in all behaviors and that we're likely have some addictive like behaviors that we're not even aware of. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm definitely guilty of that as well, you know, or just that, that feeling of when there's a spare moment in your life, you grab for your phone, whether you're at a stoplight when you're driving or, you know, before you go to bed or as soon as you wake up and it's just that feeling of needing it when you don't actually need it and filling that time with something else that would be of more value, you know, reading a book or playing with your kids or anything like that. So Oh, absolutely. I I saw something on social media that I thought was so funny. And it was this idea that um, a dad was running around the house searching for his cell phone um, because he couldn't go to the bathroom without it. So, um, you know, it's that idea that, you know, how do I even, uh, you know, how do I watch a movie without popcorn? We've been associated, like we've been conditioned that, um, you know, we have these compulsions and society normalizes them. They say, oh, this is normal. Everybody does this. In fact, uh, a movie is not as good without popcorn and a soda. And you think, well, this is normal. Everybody does that. In fact, it's almost status. Like, uh, my movie's even better because I've got a large popcorn and a soda. Um, and, and, and actuality, they're not associated at all, but we've been trained to do so. And when we consume that buttery popcorn and that sweet soda, we get some dopamine and that dopamine says, well, this must be right. This can't be wrong. This is great. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So speaking of society, you were hitting on something and I want to go a little deeper. Um, Just in how society contributes to alcohol use and all the memes that are out there, you mentioned something you saw on social media, just, um, you know, we see messages all the time about what is normal or, or good, um, as far as alcohol use. And I see, like I said, memes all the times and store selling merchandise about specifically moms, um, needing wine to get through their day. There was mother's day cards recently that had, you know, different messages on there of, you know, mom's lives are so stressful that, you know, we need a wine at the end of the day to, to get through it and to get through motherhood. What is, what are all those messages, Um, you know, what do you think about all those messages and how do you think that contributes to an addictive behavior? Well, first I would say there is, there's room for moderation. Um, you know, there, there's lots of people that can have a glass of wine and totally okay. Nothing wrong with it. Where the distortion is that if you, where you ask your doctor or you consult, you know, um, like SAMHSA or the National Institute for Addiction, um, what they don't realize, what I tell my students that I teach at the university is that, you know, according to these, uh, you know, federal agencies, four alcoholic beverages in one sitting is considered binge drinking. Um, And for the average person on a Saturday night at a bar, four drinks is what they had at their, at their house before they hit the bar. Um, they, you know, my students often laugh and think that's, that's ridiculous. So there's a distortion between what a doctor would tell you is substance abuse and what society has told us is a normal behavior. So moderation is possible. Um, 
So we don't want to completely demonize, but then at the same time, you know, there's, there's marketing behind this. If we can normalize and justify a toxic behavior, um, then, you know, it alleviates the anxiety or the internal conflict of saying like, should I be doing this? Is this wrong? Well, you know, social media or television or commercials tells me it's okay. So I feel like I'm fine and it helps in, it it contributes to the indulgence uh, and lowers the anxiety of doing a behavior that instinctively we, we probably realize isn't the best for us. So unfortunately it reinforces maladaptive coping skills um, and uh, robs the opportunity for someone to uh, have self-discipline. You, you know, good, strong coping skills are hard work. Um, patience is hard. Um, mindfulness is hard. Uh, you know, those, those things take a lot of work. And so um, I, I think it definitely does reinforce uh, a, a negative perspective that can lead to problems, especially in the smaller percentage, you know, eight, uh, off the top of my head, I, you know, the statistic is roughly like 15% of people consume 85% of alcohol. And so, um, there's the vast, you know, the, the majority of people could look at a meme of someone being intoxicated or drinking wine to survive raising their kids or, um, binge drinking college students. Um, and it might justify some negative behaviors like a binge drinking session, but the real damage is to that 15% that consumes 85% of the alcohol because they're drinking during the day, not because it's, you know, Sunday fun day and they're day drinking with their friends. It's they're drinking alone. And they, and I've had clients that I've treated that said, well, you know, when I have a bloody Mary at 9am, um, that just means I'm having a good day. I'm having mimosas, but in fact, they're an alcoholic that is drinking first thing in the morning to withdraw, to, to manage their withdrawal symptoms. But society has said that a bloody Mary at 9am is okay. So those, those messages can get convoluted and can create harm. Ideally, I would love for those to not exist, but, um, it's just not going to happen. So we've got to inform ourselves. We've got to keep each other accountable, uh, and then, you know, live a life that our values reinforce temperance and moderation. And, um, so we can combat some of that, that social indoctrination of, uh, the marketing of, of, you know, those using substances in ways that are just really not responsible. Yeah, exactly. I agree. And I was just talking to someone the other day about that, about the difference of wanting a glass of wine or needing a glass of wine at the end of the day. Um, it was another mom I was talking to and, and her eyes opened when I said that. And she said, I never thought of it that way. You know, she always said that she thought she needed it because she had worked all day. And, you know, by the time she put the kids to bed, she would sit down with her husband and have a glass of wine thinking that that's something that she needed. But she said in actuality, it was something that she actually wanted and she didn't really need it, but she chose to do it because she wanted to, you know, spend some time with her husband and relax at the end of the day. Um, and that, you know, and anyway, just this whole conversation about it, about the need versus the want. Well, and and that's evidence of the socialization of watching TV shows and movies and commercials that say that, 
you know, um, this is how you reward yourself. If you've worked hard, you know, look at Michelob uh, ultra commercials. It's like, man, you just had a workout. So this is how you reward yourself. This is the beer for people who exercise. I mean, that's the concept of that is, is ridiculous. Um, but you see that commercial and you think, Oh, that makes sense. Um, I deserve, you know, there's a, there's the distortion of, I deserve, I've earned this. Um, I saw someone at the gym the other day that had a t-shirt that says IPA earn it. Um, so a workout means that you earn a beer, which just makes absolutely no sense. Um, but when we're socialized of this is the ultimate reward, um, if, and if you use it enough, it changes from I want to I need. And if the com- first the compulsion and then the, then the physical, you start, you start uh, building a physical connection to this substance that your body has learned today was stressful. And a stressful day means I need this chemical response, this dopamine response. And your chief method of dopamine response are IPAs or red wine or some marijuana, or cigarettes, or, uh, you know, cocaine, then it, it builds and builds and builds into opportunity of getting into hard illicit drugs that can cause create problems. But, um, you know, the, that relationship can be very distorted and cause all kinds of problems. Yeah, absolutely. It certainly does. All right. So I have one last question for you. Um, we know we talked about what causes addiction, you know, how it affects the family system, other things other than alcohol and substances that people can be addicted to. So let me ask you, what can people do to get help if they are addicted to something or if they feel if a family member might be addicted to something, um, what, what do they do or what can they do? Well, you know, there's, there's a thought, uh, I, wholeheartedly embrace the idea that there is all kinds of paths to sobriety, um, and moderation. So I believe that there's, um, in the concept of, um, you know, some can moderate, some might choose sobriety. Um, you know, this concept of harm reduction is that my current use is harming me and I want to reduce that to something that is more moderate each person can find their own path. But what I find is that the fundamental components of what helps people reach those goals tend to be similar. And that is uh, transparency and accountability and community and a return to values. So have values, identify values that are more important to you than the circumstantial a momentary reward that you get from the cigarette, um, the alcohol, the drug. And so values can be kind of like your guide, your North star of saying, this is my family, my health, my job, my integrity is what me, it means more. So, um, there's so many community self-help groups, things like 12 step, things like smart recovery. Um, you know, there's different paths that, uh, you know, getting in, uh, involved in your, your community of faith, um, find a support group, find people that you can have community with. What I find is that those that try to do it alone, it's significantly more difficult and, and the likelihood of making it, um, is just not 
in your favor. And, and that's true with most difficult things in life is that you need to have a community around for support. So community is huge. Accountability is huge. Transparency, uh, regular inventory of, you know, looking at progress. Um, and, you know, unpacking the, the cognitive and psychological distortions um, that we have accumulated through our lifetime, uh, it's the flawed thinking that has supported our use. So early, you know, the, the example of if I don't drink champagne on New Year's Eve, it means that uh, it's incomplete. I'm not going to, people will look bad upon me. Um, I won't fit in. Uh, it will be a ruined experience. Why do we believe that? Can we distort that? Um, if I don't drink beer at the barbecue, uh, that means that I'm not having a good time. What, you know, where did we come up with that? So we unpack those, like the barbecue is better if I have beer. Well, is that true? Uh, do we, can we go through the steps of let's challenge these automatic thoughts that we've developed a lot with our substance that, um, really that we can challenge and say, I, I don't know if that's true at all. In fact, I'm going to reject that and, and generate a new truth that is based upon my goals and my values and things like moderation and, and um, self-discipline and uh, kind of really start recreating how you live, why you live, what leads you and what guides you. And so uh, you start transforming yourself um, so you can choose uh, community support. Um, you can choose the support of a therapist, uh, or a chemical dependency counselor, depending on the se severity of your addiction. Um, you know, there's residential treatment, there's outpatient treatment, there's your traditional therapy of, you know, once a week with a therapist. Uh, so the path can be different for, uh, each person. Um, and I, and, you know, seeking support and advice in that, uh, can help you make the right choices of, of what you think that would, you would need. Um, but definitely seek out support, build community, find a way to be accountable and find the values that really make life meaning for you, uh, that eclipse, um, and, and, and that are being compromised from the, from your, uh, you know, your addiction to whatever behavior you have or substance that you have, uh, to drive you and motivate you. Yeah, I love that. And thank you for that. And thank you. I'm sure that will help a lot of people that are listening, um, you know, to this episode, if they are, or if they know a loved one that is, you know, going through something like that. So, that's the end of our show. Um, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate you being on the show today. You are obviously such a wealth of knowledge and I value you so much as a mental health clinician and of course, as my husband. Um, so thank you for having this conversation with me today. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's an honor to be a uh, part of your podcast and it's just, I uh, just greatly admire all the work that you have. I'm glad I was able to contribute. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. I can't wait to have you back for more. Make sure to subscribe to the Parentologist podcast so you don't miss an episode and make sure to tell your friends. This podcast is not intended to be a replacement for therapy. If you or someone you know is in crisis, please call 911.